Hello, everyone, and welcome to season one, episode three of Living Leadership. We are bringing this to you from the School of Leadership Studies at Gonzaga University. And I have the pleasure of being your host, Tara Weir, and I am so excited to continue with our first season. Living Leadership consists of eight webinars, which are then followed by eight conversational podcast episodes, which is what we're about to have. And they're on topics surrounding the very timely, important topic of community and workplace wellness. So we are leaning in to what you need in, out of the workplace and how employers can support you and how you as an employer and leader can support your employees. Um, so we're leaning in and we invite you to lean in with us. Now, I am thrilled to be joined today by our two guests, Nicole Horgan and Scott Dinwiddie. Nicole and I go way back. We got to work together um, many years ago. And um, I'm so glad that Nicole was able to join us. And Scott, she brought Scott along and he is awesome, awesome addition to this conversation. So if you were able to tune into the live webinar on December 15th, you may have already had a chance to hear from them, um, Nicole and Scott, uh, but I wanna definitely reintroduce them very quickly for our topic today. And our topic today is how leaders and organizations help prevent burnout and retain employees. All right, let's start with Nicole. Nicole Horgan has nearly 20 years experience focusing on helping organizations create and execute their employee well-being strategies. She has worked with employers of all sizes in varying industries. She is currently holding two leadership positions at Primera Blue Cross, because she is a rock star and wears many hats, including leading the team at Vivacity, which is a subsidiary of Primera that focuses on helping organizations empower their people to live their healthiest lives and do their best work. Scott Dinwiddie is a corporate well-being strategist with over a decade of experience supporting employer health and well-being initiatives. His work has focused on the relationship between psychosocial factors in the workplace, basic human needs, and the expression of human potential. He is currently the director of client success for Learn to Live, a company providing digital cognitive behavioral therapy and coaching services. So those are our two speakers, presenters, conversationalists that we had on our webinar. We get to have the pleasure of on our podcast today. We also get to have Al, uh, uh, joining us as well, Emily Clay, and she is the Living Leadership Webinar and Podcast Producer. So let's start off by just saying, wow, great conversation, uh, really thrilled about what came up and what we get to go, um, you know, a little bit deeper into today. Um, such a timely, important topic. So, um, 
let's let's dive in. Well, I can tell in the way that you presented the information on the webinar that it's something you've lived with and you know studied and worked. It's been a focus of yours for so long, and you both spoke so um, articulately about it. So I'm excited about being able to dive in a little bit. Um, and and really, where I want to start with getting a little more of the nuances and some of the um, the curves and edges are um, a little bit more about the why. So why is this important? Why do we need to worry about preventing burnout? Why as a person, as a employee, as a leader, as a organization, why does this matter? What, you know, why? So um, let's start with you, Scott. Would you be willing to kick us off? Yeah, of course, I'd love to. I think you kind of gave away part of the why in the title of the presentation of the webinar, which is and retain employees. And I'm interested uh, in that aspect in part because I've heard that come up a lot more in the context of this quote unquote, uh, great resignation. And it's interesting, you know, I've been in the workplace well-being space for over a decade. And if I went back to the beginnings, uh, the why was uh, narrowly circumscribed around physical health. Uh, and the costs associated with that uh, sort of bearing down on employers in this country who are obviously sort of on the hook for employee health costs. So that was kind of the why that started in wellness. And for much of my career, I've kind of been pushing back on that, saying, now, wait a minute, this is a little bit of a narrow uh, approach to be taken to something like, uh, like well-being. Uh, nowadays, the emphasis has shifted a lot more toward productivity, engagement, and performance. We recognize that there is a relationship between work and well-being that can go wildly wrong or wildly right. I tend to believe the workplace is maybe the most powerful context that exists for accelerating human growth and development, but it is certainly one of the most powerful contexts for undermining it. And you can think of burnout uh, kind of in that way. Um, one little anecdote I'll, I'll leave you with here, and then I'll see what Nicole has to add, which is the fact that I, I've gotten to know a, and I think it's just remarkable that this company exists, a wellness company based in Istanbul, uh, Istanbul Turkey, excuse me, wow. who have built a wellness portal product. Um, nothing like the wellness portals that you know, Nicole and I have known in, during most of our careers. It's really like a late stage, modern, high-end piece of software that they are selling to employers in Turkey and in Europe who have no uh, need to reduce the burden of health costs. They're exclusively interested in retaining, attracting, and engaging employees. So this is an idea that may have caught fire here in the United States, at least in a certain way, but it's kind of spreading. And so there's probably, uh, it's, it's at least an interesting phenomenon to observe. Mm -hmm. I'll just, I'll piggyback on some of what you said, Scott. Um, and kind of just drill this down a little more. I think, you know, first of all, um, we have to think of this from the standpoint of how we feel as employees within organizations and the impact that that experience can have on our total well-being. Um, and so, you know, there was a, the Deloitte just published a, some data that suggested that four out of five employees do not feel their employers are doing enough in this space of preventing burnout. Okay, so that right there says there's part of the why. We have 80% mm -hmm. of people potentially saying that they feel more needs to be done in the workplace. 
So we just think of it from the human side and what people are feeling and they're dealing with and they're recognizing problems. That's part of the why. But if you're really going in and you're talking to leadership within an organization, you have to appeal to several different parts of this conversation. One of those is going to be financial. Um, Scott just referenced kind of the history of this space. And he's right. I mean, originally, the whole premise of employee well-being was to drive down healthcare costs. So anybody who's walking around having that conversation still is like, miss the train to, the, to where we're at now. Um, because we are not there. That is that is maybe one part of it, but it is such a hard thing to quantify also. So um, the bigger part of the financial discussion on this has to do with also what Scott brought up, which is really around like this whole productivity, engagement, uh, presenteeism, absenteeism, but it's not as simple as that because there are still people who are talking about this at a very simplistic level. Um, and it's not that simple. So we have to think about what does burnout do within an organization? Okay, so if burnout starts to impact people's ability to do their best work, the organization suffers and generally their customer suffers. And so customer can be thought of as like somebody buying a commodity or a good, but it can also be somebody who's receiving a service. We see that time and time again. Employees that are not engaged uh, that are burnout deliver poor service, uh, deliver a poor experience, which is also a new thing that is really important to consumers, the customer experience. Um, so that's going to hurt the um, company's bottom line. So there's a financial component there that someone like uh, a sales leader or a CFO uh, will care about. Um, and then you look at the financial implications of burnout employees are much more likely to leave an organization, or sometimes they can be much more likely to be extra destructive within an organization. Um, and so there are financial implications to that experience of having to replace employees. The, the emotional burden that that will put on um, colleagues is not something we can measure, but it exists and it will impact organizations. So, I mean, those are just a couple of other things. You know, I think it depends on who you're talking to around like, why should you care about this? Why should you invest in this? But if we just go back to what I said in the beginning, which is that we are all people and we know what it feels like to work in a good organization, hopefully, hopefully people have had that experience. Um, and we know what it feels like to work within an organization that we know needs work. Uh, and then you think about how you, like your work, in those different circumstances, your commitment level to go above and beyond, um, it differs. And so we know that intuitively. That's another part of the why. So I just, a couple of additional thoughts, I guess. Yeah, yeah I, I appreciate both of your comments because it's bringing back to me my memory of working in an organization that I absolutely like almost just gave my, you know, life to, like believed so deeply in it was a nonprofit. And I, I lost the balance because the organization didn't have situations. Well, they didn't have structure. They didn't, they didn't have the kinds of things that created an environment of self-care, identify your needs, you know, like have your cup full so that you can pour your cup into other people's cup. You know, it just wasn't a part of the culture. As a matter of fact, it was the opposite side of the culture. And I tried to stay and, you know, change, change the giant <laughs> and shift it and ultimately realized um, 
I, I couldn't thrive there. I just, I was not being my best self as no matter what I did on my end. So for me personally, I just know I was thrilled for us to come up with this topic because it's, it's really what started me on my, my path of creating my own business was because I, I, I was that person, kid, young adult, you know, adult that didn't really make my needs important, that didn't take really very good care of myself, that I, I really bought into the mission of this organization, and I still do, and so much to the point where I lost, I lost myself in it. So that prompted me to realize that in order for me to be my best, in order for people to be their best, we have to have our needs met. And then how we go about that is important. So um, just hearing you talk about this is like, yes, that is so true. Like I was attracted by the mission and the vision. I got really engaged in the topic, um, in, in the work that we were doing. I just couldn't be retained because my needs were not being met in an organization like that. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, so. Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Nicole. I was just going to say, you're pointing out something that we didn't really have a lot of time to talk about, but I think is really important. And that is, there are certain industries that are more prone to this issue or this concern. And one of those is nonprofit, not-for-profit type of organizations. Other types of organizations, like we, we're seeing this play out right now in hospital and provider systems, mm -hmm. um, because those types of employees who are have like a, a really heavy purpose in their work are more prone to this conversation. Um, Scott, I don't know if you want to chime in on this, but we didn't we did not delve into that topic. Nurses, doctors, not-for-profit, um, teachers uh, is another one. Um, but Scott, I don't know if you want to kind of point out some of just this. Yeah, just a quick note, validating what you said, Christina Maslach initially did her research on you know, human service workers, social workers, and initially concluded that burnout was a unique phenomenon uh, to this pro this profession, in the helping professions, as they called them. And it's since been identified that no burnout occurs everywhere, but I do think it varies from job to job. I think the reason we're having this conversation now, that there's a, a, a why that exists now that didn't exist 100 years ago, is because the nature of the work that a lot of us do in that time has changed. Fewer and fewer of us are on assembly lines. More and more, in us, more, and more of us are, are in service-based jobs. We're performing emotional labor. You talk about the emotional exhaustion component, it's central to this. Um, so I, I think if you're expecting employees to use, to leverage their emotionality, you know, quite literally as uh, you know, part of the value creation process, as I think organizations are increasingly doing today, you know, a single customer service rep can, can delight, surprise and delight a customer by empathizing and connecting and figuring out how to solve a problem. So I think, um, the, the conversation is maybe a little bit different uh, different today than it was before because of the changing nature of our professions and is an important variable to consider. That's so important, mm -hmm. Kara, especially when you were talking about, you know, and Nicole, the different industries. I'm like totally over here nodding my head. I feel like I've been in both of those circumstances completely. Like one of my first jobs ever was for this nonprofit that I cared so, so deeply about. And I completely burnt myself out working 
so over time doing everything I could because I just like believed in the mission so wholeheartedly. And then I've also found myself working somewhere where I have a great job, I'm getting paid great, I have great benefits, but I don't really care about the services that we're selling. And so it's like totally different types of burnout. And I think that's a really um, important thing to differentiate when you're having conversations with your employees and figuring out what the why is behind the burnout and all of these things. Um, so yeah, I think for sure industries play a huge role. And that in the six areas of work life that you all included, one of them was values. And like you just described that, you know, that is an important um, factor too, is that, and the, the beauty is when they all align and we have all areas covered, right? Um, but acknowledging what needs are being met of those, you know, of those areas and what, what needs aren't. Um, and in particular, I want to transition into the next topic, which I personally in my coaching that I, that I do safety, uh, psychological safety in particular, emotional safety in work environments really plays a part in their ability to engage and to be their best. Um, because that is such an important human need, right? So you talked a lot about those basic human needs during your webinar, really appreciated. So if you didn't hear the webinar, I highly recommend you go and watch it. Highly recommend that um, because really in order for us to be our best, one of the most important needs is to feel safe. So, um, you know, either one of you, whoever wants to start, let's talk about safety, the need for safety and how does that play into or doesn't play into burnout? Well, I'll start and then Scott, you can kind of chime in. So this topic, psychological safety, has become more mainstream in the conversation of worksite wellness. Um, because if you don't have it, it erodes pretty much everything else you try to do within the organization. Um, and we, and so you think of examples of what does this mean? Um, it can be a variety of things. So I'll just kind of describe, you know, if I have a one-on-one -on -one with one of my team members and we are having some discussion about something. There is the reaction that I'm going to have to ideas that they bring up. So that's kind of like the first line of experience an employee might have with this whole notion of psychological safety in the workplace. So one, how do I react to what they say, especially if it's something outside of what I believe or something that might burden me more or, you know, whatever it is, I think as a leader, you have to really think about that initial reaction because, and then you have to think about the compound effect of the reactions. So um, one good, one good conversation of you being, you know, accepting of new ideas and collaborative and vulnerable in conversation is not going to override 95% of the time it not being that way. So there's, there's that one reaction and then there's the consistency. And then it's like, what do you do beyond that? That sends a strong message. So if an employee brings something to me and I go and they find out I have done something malicious with the information or I have come back in some sort of what feels like retaliation, then you just erode the whole thing. So when we're talking about safety, I just want to kind of like provide some context as to how that can play out negatively or poorly. I think we probably also have all had scenarios where we've had a conversation with a colleague or our manager or whoever where we felt really good 
and we didn't, you know, and we felt good with the whole trajectory of the conversation. And then we've had these other scenarios where we felt defeated, uh, stupid, embarrassed, you know, whatever it is. And so those emotions will very much override future um, feelings that you have. And they're going to naturally, any, any human is going to naturally like kind of pull back and be like, I shouldn't do that again. I shouldn't put myself out there. And so that's when you start to see organizations start to shut down on the creativity front, on, you know, collaboration, on just innovation. I mean, it just stifles all of that. Scott, I'll let you kind of layer on Scott's perspective there. Yeah, I mean, first of all, I think, uh, you know, I talked a lot in the webinar about all these basic human needs. And I think if I had to reduce that whole complex of needs down to one, it would be safety. Um, I also think that safety is interesting in the sense that you mentioned it's, it's become more part of the conversation and well-being. And I think rightfully so. I think when it first really came on the scene strong in the past few years was in association with the uh, work that Google did. I think it was their own research on their own teams where they found what well, they were looking for, what is the single factor that most strongly predicts the performance of a team? And surprisingly, it was the extent to which people felt safe with the others on their team, sharing transparently, offering their contributions without fear of you know what, what others might think effectively. And this is an example. I think the point I want to make is that so often well-being and performance at work are two positive outcomes sitting on the same foundation. And it's the foundation that I you know, refer to as these basic human needs. So you can look at psychological safety as one, uh, purpose. There's a whole conversation about purpose at work that again, is kind of run on a parallel track from well-being for a while, but has occasionally and increasingly started to blend in. Uh, belonging, community, and connection. You know, I think we're seeing wellness programs over time kind of gravitate toward these things uh, for good reason, not because our health habits don't matter. In a, in a way, they're part of that same constellation of basic needs. We need to eat well. Uh, we need to exercise. Otherwise, we're likely to have an energy crisis and experience something like burnout, if not uh, exact burnout. So um, yeah, I think the fact that you honed in on safety, Tara, is, is uh, intuitive and, and perceptive. It is, you know, if, if I had to pick one of those basic needs, it really is. Maslow put it close to the foundation, although you know, it wasn't a true pyramid. Um, it's absolutely central. Yeah, I want to just I want to build on one more thought about this because um, you know I just described like an isolated situation, like an isolated conversation, and what we've seen in organizations is sometimes you'll have a CEO or top leadership are verbalizing the priority of safety in the workplace, but between them and, you know, several layers down in the organization, there is a very big disconnect. And so that's what employers and organizations need to be really careful of, um, is making sure it's consistent because the situation I described where I can have, you know, this type of conversation with a teammate of mine, if they have a different experience somewhere else in the organization, that totally negates, you know, the fact that that organization is demonstrating a safe environment across the board. That is a hard thing to do. You're always going to have little pockets of things, but I think you have to be thinking about it like that if you're leading an organization. Is it has to be the more common experience, um, uh, no matter what part of the organization you're working in. Um, yeah, I feel like there's such a big. 
I think inclusivity is such a big part of safety in that. Like, I think also touching on safety for diverse populations in the workplace, like women, people of color, LGBTQ community, everything, like not only feeling safe in terms of being able to use your voice, but feeling safe to bring yourself to work without judgment and having that inclusivity in mind as a leader is so important. Yeah, and that's a whole other expanded topic around community that you're bringing up is all of the efforts around DE&I work and and what employers should be thinking about, but you're right, it really is intertwined. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, DE&I is the diversity, equity, and inclusion topic as it's so important to this day and age and hopefully into the all future. Um, And what I hear, what I just heard you say, Nicole, is uh, what I really fully agree with is it's not just words, it's action, it's practical action. And it's not just one time or in this aspect of the business or this aspect of the culture, but as a common practice and that the majority, you know, 80-20 rule, like 80% is hopefully in that psychologically safe, creating these um, cultures where people can be their best, they can innovate, they can um, risk that kind of thing. but I, I really appreciate the idea of that that common practice. So here's the ironic thing is that what I want to do is shift the conversation to words, a little bit around words, because, um, and I want to start by saying that when I, I heard, I think it was Scott say, you know, focus on empathy. I don't remember which one, but um, focusing on empathy is so important. And it's, it's easy to... Um, say, it's easy to say that that's the kind of culture, read our little byline, or here's our mission, or here's, here's the statement of the week, or, um, but the question is, how do we put that into action? And one of the actions that Scott brought up is the idea of crucial conversations. And the conversations are a lot of the kind of work I do with my clients is because it's all about how do we communicate? How are we communicating to our employees? How are we communicating to our supervisor? Um, how are we communicating to our customers and and having the safety, psychological safety in an organization where you can have those difficult conversations, you can approach those topics um, is so important. Um, and in our break, you know, Scott, you'd mentioned about caring, you know, caring conversations. So the idea of having crucial and caring conversations um, is so important. And the example that you had brought up with Zoom during the webinar um, and something you'd mentioned too, let's, let's talk about, we have the abstract idea of empathy, right? And then the concrete action, what does it look like in conversations that we have? Um, let's talk more about that. Scott, would you kick us off? Yeah, sure. I, I think um, empathy is a great word, right? And we, we heard from the, the story Zooms initiative where they sort of, it came out of these conversations they were having with employees focus groups that empathy was something they should focus on. And then they converted that interestingly into an initiative called Caring Conversations, where I think the idea is that uh, it is only by sitting down. And let's talk about what a real conversation is. I think that might help. And I like to rely on a definition from the poet, David White. He's an Irish poet. Yeah, I see you clapping. You, so you, you're familiar with David. He lives in the Puget Sound area. An absolutely uh, brilliant, deep, and, and uh, obviously poetic man who has a way with words like uh, you wouldn't believe. But he describes a real conversation as one in which each party enters 
with the vulnerability and the willingness to be moved, to be changed by what the other person presents. And if you are not open and, and vulnerable in that way, then by definition, you are not having a real conversation. And that alone, you know, David White is a poet who consults with organizations. I would love to have been a fly on the wall for one of those conversations just to hear how he you know, addresses and approaches this. But I think if you, if you just take that lens and you look around, you can reduce a lot of problems to the fact that organizations are not having real, authentic conversations with their people. And I'll draw on a concept from Crucial Conversations, which is the shared pool of meaning. Uh, a shared pool of meaning is what you get when both sides are able to contribute their perspective, their subjectivity into the, into the pool. And then you can take that uh, and then you, you now have a, a, at least, a, if not something in common, a shared understanding from which to act, from which to decide. Um, so I think that is so important, especially in the context of this conversation. If we're talking about better taking care of our employees, better meeting their needs so that they are more engaged, so they don't leave or whatever the outcome is, um, we're going to have to be, first of all, Nobody's going to be able to tell you how to take care of your employees better than you. You are in the best position to figure this out. And how are you going to do it? I think it's largely through what I'm calling conversation. And I'm using that a little bit metaphorically and abstractly, but it is literally what you're going to have to do is get out and talk to people one-on-one -on -one, in groups, in, in survey instruments, you know, at scale. Um, and one last thing is that, you know, I always come back to this idea of sense and respond, sensitivity and responsiveness. Uh, those are really the two pillars, I think, of what we are called to do if we wanna serve the basic human needs of our employees. Uh, our needs are gonna change over time. You know, Some are gonna express stronger at, at, uh, at one point or another, and different people are gonna have different needs expressing at different times. So this is an incredibly difficult challenge, but, if, but you can do it authentically, if not perfectly. You can do it sincerely in a way that people, you know, gosh, maybe that initiative Scott launched last week wasn't quite in line with my needs, but there's no question that he is listening and responding uh, with, with authenticity. I think uh, so many of the things that haven't gone quite right with wellness programs and similar initiatives in my experience could have been uh, prevented if only they started with an authentic conversation. <laughs> yeah, and I think we, like you said, Nicole, our tendency is to kind of pull back, like, oh, I shouldn't do that again. So, you know, if you have a difficult conversation or, or you get lashed back out or you get a reaction that's not creating safety, it's that same idea around these conversations. You know, it's like so many humans avoid conflict. Like, it's just kind of our nature to say, I want to stay safe, so I'm not going to rock the boat. I'm not going to bring this up. And a lot of the time it's unconscious. So, uh, and, and regardless of what a person's role is, whether you're the CEO or your frontline employee, we all have, as you said, I, I love that, Nicole, it reminds me of, you know, a leader in every chair or a leader in every seat. It's like, we all have the opportunity to influence. So it's doing it through having the courage and then the skill set, right? Because that's, that's the part that, and the practice. So having the courage, the skill set, and the practice to get it into place where you can have these kinds of conversations and be an influencer. Nicole, what are your thoughts about this? Well, I think, you know, Scott was sharing an optimal state of conversation. Um, but the truth is it takes a while to get there generally. 
um, within an organization. So there has to be, as we go back to, you know, the topic of safety, and I think just repetitive um, behavior that gets you to a place of being able to do that on a regular basis. So let's just like not forget about that because, you know, we've talked to organizations who, you know, you have someone within the organization, they're like, well, I went and tried to talk to them and get ideas or get their feedback and nobody had anything to say. Well, it's like, well, you haven't gotten there yet. That's the truth. Um, you haven't created that environment where that is established yet. Um, the other thing I was just going to comment on is, you know, just the sensitivity. Um, I, I often, you know, it's that, it's that old saying, like, treat others how you want to be treated type of thing. But I think of that when I interact with colleagues around, like, really trying to understand what they're going through and how they're seeing the world. So that's where empathy comes in, right? And especially over the past few years, um, well, two years or so with the pandemic experience, we, um, I think, have crossed that work and personal um, kind of boundary. Um, you know, people working from home, we started to see kids in the background and different experiences and things like that. And so, you know, I think it's important for organizations to be in tune with what's going on with their employees. Um, I tried, I did it again this year. The previous year, I tried this um, idea around when we're talking about goals. And usually those are performance-based goals of projects or work to be completed or metrics or whatnot. Um, but I introduced this conversation with um, people on my team around like, what's just like your personal development goal? Um, and it wasn't for me to try to figure out if they're going to meet that goal or not. It was more around understanding that person better and what was a priority for them. And so then I, you know, in, as a leader can work around that. I can know if we encroach too closely on something that's really important for them, we've crossed a boundary, um, you know? And so that, you know, again, I, I didn't necessarily know how to do that and have that conversation, but what was important was just like the effort of trying to sit in your employee's shoes and understand their life and understand their priorities. And they are all individuals. So you have to kind of do that individually and then roll it back up into how you look at how your teams function. So just, I don't know, I'm kind of going off on a rabbit trail, I feel like, but it's important, you know, it's kind of important yeah. to put into this. So. Yeah, we were saying on the break, we could probably talk about this for days and days and days because there's so many aspects and layers to this, um, which I think part of that is what makes it challenging is because it's a little bit of that, ugh, too much, can't figure it out, you know, too much to do, too many tasks to take care of. And, um, and yet it's critical for the health of our community and the health of our organizations. Um, and I, and what I hear too, is just that what makes me think that understanding somebody's experience, it takes curiosity and it takes asking questions and listening, good listening, um, which I mean, we could go on for days about what that looks like and practicing and getting those skills in to, you know, into place. But ultimately, um, really, it comes down to being able to really understand somebody. And and for me, with the, the um, you know, the topic of diversity and equity and inclusion, understanding somebody else's experience, especially the ones that make me uncomfortable, <laughs> are the ones that I need to really have that curiosity around. So I think that's a really great um 
perspective that like you just described of understand the experience and that can fit in so many different situations. What about you, Scott? What are you thinking? Oh gosh, my mind is just racing from one topic to another. I think, um, you know, we had, we had spoken a little bit about the idea that flexibility is essential. It's, you know, it's not, a, it's not an extra as Microsoft had said, and it's just like, what would the world look like if all of our basic human needs were essential in the workplace? These are the kind of lofty ideals I have. And I really appreciated your last comment, Nicole, how you've kind of taken my, uh, you know, airy fairy, uh, idealistic language and sort of bringing it down to some real examples of how you've you've affected that on your team. Another thing I, I think would be interesting to throw into this conversation, and, and this is another example of something that's it's not antithetical to my perspective, but it's not where I typically start when I think about things. But there's an MIT professor named Zainab Tong who wrote a book called The Good Jobs Strategy and has since gone on to create a project called The Good Jobs Project. And she talks about all the things we talk about, you know, designing work, designing jobs around human needs, making sure people have meaning and dignity and can do well in their work. But for her, the foundation is operations. You know, she's an operations guru. And we tend to think of these as two completely separate tracks, but she points out brilliantly how, for example, you know, Trader Joe's and Costco, it's not just that they pay uh, a higher rate to their employees, but they they make a conscious decision to carry fewer products, resulting in less complexity, which allows their employees to be engaged in continuous improvement and all sorts of other tasks and have a better quality of work and life. Another thing she mentioned is uh, I think she actually proved that most low-cost retail settings were systematically understaffing and that that was causing reduced profitability. And that by actually overstaffing a little bit from where they were, overcorrecting you know, to the right of what was an inverted view, they could increase store profitability. And so even though she has been very critical of companies like Walmart, I think they're now working with her. So just to throw that out as another perspective that maybe we haven't given, and I certainly uh, don't start in that place of thinking about operations, not where my expertise is, but for anyone listening who happens to have uh, strengths in that area, this is a way that you can have a significant impact on these things we're talking about, even if you don't necessarily lead a team or engage in these types of conversations. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, we're kind of rounding up towards an hour. I just wanted to ask you, um, I'd love to just hear final thoughts, any um, or, or like questions to ask themselves on how to best move forward from here. And you either one of you can start. Well, I mean, I think there's probably an obvious trend of what we keep talking about, and that's focusing on the people. Um, so I think a lot of times organizations miss that, um, and they don't focus on the people. And when, when when you're making big decisions about your business, I think you you can't just be sitting around looking at spreadsheets and numbers. You really have to be thinking about some of those cultural pieces and the impact and just making sure that's in you know part of the con consideration and, and that's really what we keep coming back to is you know connection and understanding your people and um and it's a hard thing to do it really is a hard thing to do so we're not trying to simplify it but i think that would be the thing i would just suggest if you ever get yourself in a business conversation and you're not thinking about the impact to your workforce in that conversation you've gone wrong Great. Well, thank you both so much in your participation with the webinar today and then taking the time to follow up on these topics. Uh, clearly, 
There is so much to explore. I think you both have given some beautiful concrete, not only concrete suggestions, action steps and that kind of thing, but I think philosophically how people can think about their workplace, think about how they're leading, think about what culture they're creating. So really, really valuable, um, really valuable. So thank you both so much. All right. Well, don't forget to tune in next time for productivity, practices, mindfulness, intentionality, and goal setting. So productivity practices of mindset, mindfulness, intentionality, and goal setting. And that will be on Wednesday, January 26th at noon Pacific Standard Time. And you can expect to see our podcast recording uploaded the following week, just like this one will be uploaded by next week. So lastly, another very huge giant thank you to this year's Living Leadership Sponsors. Canopy Credit Union and Avista Utilities. Thank you so much for this, your support. All right, that's all for today. And we can't wait to see you next time.